0: Okay, so uh, we have seen in the last three weeks, uh, God created all things, right? What chapter was that in, or chapters? What chapter did God create all things? Chapter one, and then another kind of retelling of it in chapter two. Uh, All things are good, there's perfect uh, fellowship with man, and perfect worship of God, And then something tragic happens. Uh, Adam and Eve disobey God and eat of the fruit. What chapter is that? Three. And we saw in the midst of sin, God make a remarkable promise uh, that he would um, ultimately crush the head of the serpent by one who is to come. What was that big Greek word? Anybody remember? What? (laughs) No, no, not savior. Uh, It's a good guess. The first gospel, remember that? Bam! Proto-evangelium, the first gospel, Where this is a, one of the most important verses in the Bible. You guys remember where it is? Not John 3.16, but Genesis 3.15, it's a major, major verse. Um, but then we saw last week that after man is exiled from the garden and sent away from God, it continues to get worse and worse. Uh, now we have anger, and we have murder, and we have like open fish shaking against God. I uh, will sin however I want, and I do not care what you think about it, uh, Cain and then his great-great-great-great-grandson Lamech said. Um, so now we get, in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, and 9, uh, one of the most well-known stories... In the Bible uh, it's one of our favorites. my kids love it. You loved it as a kid. Uh, we have a fisher price Noah's Ark that our kids play with. Maybe you had one as well, and thanks to Danielle, I remembered that wonderful song that we all sang as a kid, uh, and God told Noah to build him an arky, arky. God told noah remember what well, how's the recipe no no. Barky Barky yeah, children of the Lord. Uh, okay, gopher barky barky. Uh, by the way, I wasn't planning on mentioning gopher bark or gopher trees today. Biblical scholars have no idea what gopher bark is, by the way. Uh, anyway, interesting note. Okay, um, you maybe saw the movie Evan Almighty, right? Which somehow made the story of Noah's Ark into like an environmental fable. Uh, But nevertheless, the monkeys were hilarious, right? Uh, Because we love animals. Uh, And I I even hear, maybe you guys have seen this, that uh, Russell Crowe is making a Noah's Ark movie. Uh, He will be Noah. uh, And they're filming in Iceland. I looked up some pictures. It's like desolate and deserty. But it looks pretty cool. But I'm very interested to see how they treat this story well, the reality is in all of that we tend to treat this story like a kid's story right gopher barky barky right and fisher price arcs and animals and monkeys like throwing things at the zebras right hilarious uh but the reality is is that it isn't far from a children's story it is one of the scariest and should be one of the saddest stories in all of the bible um uh, We tend to think about only the eight people inside once the door closes on the ark and how they're dealing with the animals inside and everything. But we very rarely think about the millions of people outside of the ark once the door closes. Uh, I I read a bunch about Noah this week. And John Piper pointed me to a painting from a French artist in the 1860s. I'm not going to show this because it's pretty gruesome. But um, the painting... Shows a rock jutting out of the ocean, and there is a man and a woman, presumably husband and wife. They're naked, and they have three small children, small toddlers, on top of this rock. And the mother is trying to put her baby on the rock next to the baby, to the children. There's a tiger with a tiger cub in her mouth. They're trying to stay out of the water. There are dead bodies floating around, and there are vultures. Circling overhead. Uh, it's gruesome. And the reality is, is that outside of the ark, this is what life was like. Uh, this is anything but a children's story. So, what is it the story of? Well, it's the story of man's sin, God's judgment against that sin, and God's grace. So we're going to look at those three things this morning. That man's progression of sin, that sin is getting worse. It continues to get worse. Uh, and then God's salvation through judgment of sin, and then God's grace despite even more sin. So first, last week we saw that Adam's sin got progressively worse, right? It got worse with Cain, and then it got worse with Lamech. Uh, The seed of the woman, remember? The one that will struggle continually against the seed of the serpent. Uh, The seed of the woman went through Seth, and then down through Enoch, and then now down through a. guy named Noah but it appears that the seed of the serpent is winning out over the seed of the woman the seed of Cain and Lamech seems to be winning out so we read in 6 5 picking up verse 5 the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart so we get, before we get to that somewhat confusing verse 6, let's think about for a minute what God is observing here. Uh, we see, the Lord saw. The only time we've seen this phrase, but we've seen it a lot, is in Genesis 1. When do we see that? The Lord saw? In Genesis 1? The Lord saw that it was good. Every, after everything that he's making, he sees it and he sees that it was good. This is a stark contrast from what he sees in chapter 6. He now sees nothing good, but only the wickedness of man. The Lord saw. Now, you've heard me rail against our idea of, like, God as being some cosmic Santa Claus, rewarding good kids and punishing bad kids. Uh, You know, like, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. Right? Uh... The point of that phrase in Santa Claus is coming to town is almost to scare you into being a good kid so you get toys, right? And if you're not a good kid, you get coal, right? And while that's not true, the reality is is that God does see. He does see all of our lives. Our family uh, with our kids is learning the Westminster Shorter Catechism for children with our boys. And two of the questions are really great that we ask them. We say, and even better with a little Caleb voice but we say can can you see God and Caleb says nope but he always sees me and then we say does God know all things yes nothing is hidden from God right and these two questions are so true though can you see God no but he always sees me can you hide anything from God no he knows all things nothing is hidden from God. And so we talk about, you know, we'll get a pillow and hide my hand under the pillow. Can you see my hand? No, because it is hidden. You cannot see my hand. But nothing is hidden from God. He sees all things. Maybe a lot of you guys weren't even in here a year ago. Uh, but last summer, well, over a year ago, we went through the Sermon on the Mount And we talked a lot about a a Latin phrase that was "coram Deo. Does anybody remember what that phrase means? Sometimes it gets used in our culture, "Coram Deo. Do you know, John? No, they're not. These are good words to learn. "Coram Deo. This phrase means before the face of God or in the presence of God. The idea being that all of life is before him, because he sees all. And it's not just that he sees just our deeds, our good deeds and our bad deeds, like Santa Claus. The second half of verse 5 says that every intention of his, of man's heart, was only evil continually. God not only sees actions, but he also knows the motivations behind actions. And the truth is that a heart that is not reborn... uh, always and is only motivated by evil. You get that? A heart that is not reborn is always and only motivated by evil. And, whoa, you might be saying. Now, I mean, I get that people, mostly people might do some bad things, but I know lots of non-Christians who build houses for Habitat for Humanity and who volunteer at homeless shelters and are just all around good people, right? Uh, So, I don't don't think we should say their intentions are always evil. That seems a bit over the top. And if we're comparing those people, your friends, people that we see on TV, to maybe just the bullies at your school, or to criminals, or to Hitler, then yes, they're pretty good folks, right? Um, But first of all, we need to say, first, we can't see heart motives like God can. Many people do publicly good things so that they can be seen publicly, right? Uh, and so that makes them self-serving rather than others serving. But the bigger thing is this. Even in all of this non-profit and charitable work, good deeds that non-Christians do, even if it's from a genuine desire to like serve people, uh, a heart that is not reborn is still operating under the definition from sin from John Piper that we saw a few weeks ago. It's really long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just... The idea that sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverence, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, and on and on and on. So even though I'm going to build a house for someone who needs uh, a home, it is completely ignoring all of these great truths of God and completely ignoring God himself. And life that has no acknowledgement as God as creator or the good king and creator of the universe is a sinful and evil life. So, here's in your notes. Good deeds that ignore or refuse God's glory are sinful. Good deeds, however good and serving and loving of people, however good those things are, if they ignore or refuse God as Creator and King, are wicked, are sinful. Just like the abstract taking of a piece of fruit off of a tree isn't an evil thing, right? Uh, but the action of refusing God as King, as trusting in Him, as uh, trusting in Him, as knowing what is best—these things are just as satanic as the serpent himself. So this is the world that God is observing. It's a world of people who are living their lives lives as if God cannot or does not see. Or even worse, that he does see and they just don't care. And here's where we get to our weird verse about God being sorry that he had made man on earth. Is God saying, I've made a huge mistake? I... I thought this great experiment with mankind would have turned out differently, but boy, was I wrong. They are worse than I could have ever imagined. This is not what God is saying. He doesn't want a do-over. He's not saying, if I could only go back in time and not create humanity, I would. This is not what God is saying. And I'll admit, this is really, really difficult. This is a difficult passage. Um, But I think what Moses is saying, who wrote this, is that God feels, he is not just some aloof God, who doesn't care about what's happening on earth. The sin of man isn't just affecting people horizontally. Like, Abel died. Oh, he got killed. People are hurting, uh, but I don't care. Uh, No, this is not what God is saying. He is deeply moved and affected by the sin of humanity. He is greatly grieved by it. And because he is so greatly grieved by our sin, he will not allow sin and wickedness to go unpunished. God has moved and grieved, and he will make things right by the phrase, blotting out man from this earth. Blotting them out. It's like you have a piece of paper with pencil writing, and you lick it, and you blot it out. It's what God has promised to do to mankind. And notice that Moses doesn't try to convince you that, this judgment is like good and necessary. He doesn't say, yeah, this is kind of weird and it's kind of hard for us to accept because some women and children are going to die. But it's okay, it's okay. And this is why. Because God is like, he doesn't try to give a bunch of excuses for God. He assumes that God is always good. He's always just in what he does. He's always right in how he deals with humanity. And he assumes that if we understood the gravity of his explanation of wickedness in 6.5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, if we accept that, then that is enough for us to also accept that God's judgment was just and necessary. So, we get to God's salvation through judgment of sin. We get to this realization that God is going to blot out humanity but God must also preserve a remnant of people so the line of the woman can continue and ultimately one day crush the serpent. So verse 8, Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now take a look at that, at the order of this verse and the next verse. next verse in 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God At first glance, we might read that description and say, Noah was righteous, he was blameless, he walked with God, and so he found favor. But that's not the order that Moses writes it, is it? And this word in which the ESV, which I'm reading from, translates favor, can also, all over the Old Testament, mean a similar word of grace. So this idea of favor, nearly always when it is used, is like an unmerited favor. A a grace that is given despite of what Is done. So I think God is calling Noah in grace, calling him to himself, despite of anything that he might have done, which then leads to a responsive heart in Noah, one that is righteous and blameless and walking with God. Uh, So, just as we said last week, maybe Eve thought Cain or Abel was the one who would crush the serpent's head. Perhaps you might think that this one, this one Noah is the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. Uh, but we're going to find out in chapter 9 that Noah isn't completely righteous. He's still sinful. But Moses' description of him is still true. That he, is, he walks with God. He lives his life quorum Deo. He lives his life before the face of God, in his presence, walking with him, seeing his sin as God sees it, and repenting from it. So, now we get the rest of chapter 6. We find Noah building, building the ark. Which, unlike Evan Almighty, and most depictions of the ark that we see today, probably didn't look much like a boat. Ty, we got that? It more looked like, can we see that over the thing? It looks like a, more like a big box. Uh, which, incidentally, would have sat really low in the water and would have been next to impossible to capsize. Uh, but this is the thing that Noah builds over decades and while we don't get a narrative picture in Genesis, in our book here, about Noah's building and the surely, uh, the surely ridiculing people around him, the author of Hebrews says this, in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that came by faith. And then Peter, in 1 Peter, calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. So it's like, as he's building this, he is preaching the gospel to those around him. He is preaching of God's coming judgment. And he gave them ample time to repent. To repent of their wickedness. To get in the boat with them. But nobody else does. He's building this box that is as wide as a football field, and as long as a football field and a half, in the middle of a desert, what is, what is like, what, what makes a desert a desert? The sun, but it, which means what? No there's no rain. There's no rain and there's no water and Noah's building a big boat in the middle of the desert. Pretty, pretty weird. And here's one part of Evan Almighty that actually does a pretty good job of kind of portraying what's happening here. In the movie, Evan loses his job. He's the object of public ridicule. And all this to make a giant boat that nobody understood the purpose of. We've defined worldliness a couple times in the last couple weeks. To the world around him, faithfulness and obedience to God look strange to the world around him. And wickedness in the world around him look normal. But Noah was far from worldly. Uh, although Evan doubted in the movie, right? He's like, ah, this is, maybe I shouldn't do this, and Morgan Freeman God has to, like, come to him a couple times to, like, encourage him to keep doing it, right? Uh, Noah doesn't doubt. He believes God's word to be true. He trusts him. And in in 622, Noah did this, built the ark, and he did all that God commanded him. And then Noah and his family enter the ark. And here's something pretty cool. I think the ark that Moses is describing here is supposed to bring to mind the tabernacle for his readers. Remember who who is Moses writing to? Who is he writing the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible to? Israel in the desert. Like when, when in their history is the, are they probably reading this or hearing these stories? Before they go into the promised land. So they've been brought out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the desert, and uh, now they are hearing this great story of their history, of God's redemption of them, before they enter into the land. And for the last few decades, they've been carrying around this tent called the tabernacle, which they set up whenever they stop, uh, where they sacrifice to God, and God's presence comes down from the cloud and dwells with his people. Uh, Moses spends a good time, a good deal of chapter 6, describing the like dimensions and measurements of this boat In his next book, Exodus, he'll take five chapters to meticulously describe the dimensions and measurements of the tabernacle, of its building. One commentator says that one can only come near the tabernacle in these days only by bringing an animal offering that is unblemished, it's clean. Thus, just as the completed tabernacle can be entered only with the unblemished animals as an offering, so Noah's entry in the ark is tied to him taking with seven pairs of every clean animal. Seven 2 So I think what Moses is doing in writing this story is crafting and crafting this story is portraying this ark as an early tabernacle, just as we saw three weeks ago. The Garden of Eden was an early tabernacle, an early temple. So we'll talk more about this in a minute. But nevertheless, God brings Noah's family, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives, incidentally, all of these four men's one wife uh, monogamy one man one woman is still being upheld is what the righteous do in the land but they also bring in two of every kind of animal that was alive at the time <clears throat> and then we see in verse 16 of chapter 7 the lord shut him in the door it's not like moses is like grabs the handle and like pulls it closed the lord himself is the one who seals noah's family from the coming judgment And then let's read a little bit, a big section here. 7, 17 through 24. So they're closed in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. And all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So it rains for 40 days. Can you imagine this? Like last weekend, it rained like two and a half days, and I was going crazy in the house. Couldn't go outside. Couldn't, my boys were like running around and like running into walls and stuff because they couldn't play outside. Can you imagine 40 days? Not only to mention the fact that everyone that Noah and his family has ever known is dead outside this boat. And this giant boat that they're stuck in smells like a farm. Uh, but it rains for 40 straight days. 40 days from now, it's 40 days, like, in, what's the word specifically? not 40 days, dr- whatever. 40 days from now is Halloween. Okay. Uh, so, as you guys are getting in your Buzz Lightyear and your Cinderella costumes, uh, 40 days from now, remember that day that Nathan preached about Noah. That is 40 days from now. Okay? That is a long time of being cooped up in a farm box. Uh, and then we find out that they floated around for 90 more days. Or 110 more days. 150 days total. 150 days from now is roughly the beginning of February. So as you click on AMC uh, and see Needlenose Ned Ryerson because it's Groundhog Day, uh, you think back about being cooped up in a box for that long. That's a long time from now. But Noah, even though this long, long time of floating around in this giant smelly box... He is ever hopeful, he is ever expectant, he is ever trusting in God. We know this because of this weird scene with some birds. This is a weird scene. You guys know it, right? The raven and the dove? But it's pretty strange. The first thing Noah does is he sends out a raven. Uh, Anybody know anything about ravens? Deliana, you know anything about them? They are very loud, yes? Josh. Carry on birds, what is that word? Anybody know what that word means? Carry on? Josh? They eat dead things. They eat carcasses, right? They're scavengers, like little vultures. Uh, and one of, the, yeah, one of the many things that they scavenge for is death, is dead bodies. And throughout the Old Testament, if your body is scavenged by the birds, namely ravens, It signifies being under the curse of God. In Deuteronomy, Israel is warned by Moses that if they are unfaithful to Yahweh, they will be defeated by their enemies. And then, quote, "...your dead body shall be food for all of the birds of the air, and there shall be none to frighten them away." David tells Goliath, right before he goes to battle, he he says to the Philistines, he says, "...and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air." To the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. These are just two examples of tons in the Old Testament about birds eating the bodies that are left open. That are forsaken by others and then incidentally forsaken by God. After ignoring Noah's preaching of coming judgment for decades, the people that are drowned out there under the waters... Rightfully receive God's curse of condemnation. So Noah symbolically sends out God's curse. He sends out the curse of God over the waters, over the remaining world. And in fact, Old Testament birds bringing God's curse that we'll later read in the following books in the Old Testament probably gets much of its meaning from this bird of cursing, this raven. But that isn't the only bird that Noah sends out, right? Noah then sends out a dove, which brings back an olive branch. There's a sign that the dove brings back that there is life out there, that something is growing, that something is not underwater. There is hope out of destruction. There is new life. There is salvation through judgment. And then, after 150 days of looking out the window, in one, Moses tells us that God remembered Noah. Now, this isn't like when you're like sitting in bed or lying in bed, when you're like going to sleep or you're kind of waking up in the morning and you like sit up and say, Ah, I had chemistry homework. I totally didn't do it. All of you have done this, right? You're in bed and you forget the assignment that was assigned. Uh, God isn't like snoozing in bed and like shoots up and says, Noah, I forgot. I forgot him. He's just floating around out there. It's 150 days. I can't believe I forgot about him. No, this isn't what God is saying. Remembering here means that he is honoring or remembering his covenantal promises to Noah. The promises that he made to him in covenant in 6 verse 18. If you guys were in the first service today, uh, Hannah's song, she praises God for remembering her. for For God remembering, being faithful to his people. So God is faithful to Noah here. He's faithful to not only save him, but to keep him until to, to deliver, him, deliver him. This was indeed a tabernacle. This is the place that God brought and kept peace with his covenantal people despite the sin of the nations around him. And we said that three weeks ago Moses intended the Garden of Eden to be a precursor, a foreshadow of the coming tabernacle, of God's dwelling with his people. But do you remember what we said that if, if Eden... Go this way. If Eden was a foreshadow of the tabernacle, what do we say the tabernacle is a foreshadow of here? Do I remember? This is important. Nobody? Josh? Jesus. Jesus himself. Like the tabernacle prepared Israel, Jesus is the way that God purchases and maintains right relationship with his people. The tabernacle was... A, was The place that God dwelt with his people for a time. But Jesus is how God meets and dwells with his people for eternity. And if the ark is like the tabernacle, then the ark also prepares us for Jesus himself. Consider these parallels between the ark and the cross. That God saves his people through an implement of wood. You got these on your notes, Ty, you got it? A boat and a cross object of wood that God saves his people through. That there is only one means of salvation. The command is, be inside the boat or you will die. Be found in the cross or you will die. Salvation through covenant. Enter covenant with God through the ark or through the cross. Salvation through what seems to be foolish to the world. Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. I'm sure Noah would have agreed and said something similar. The word of the ark is folly to those who are perishing out there, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God to save his people. What looks foolish is actually how God is saving his people. The truth of the matter is, is that we all are wicked. The truth is that our hearts are our only evil continually we are under god's right and good judgment of his curse the only way that we are safe from this curse is to be found in the one whom the dove ultimately finds its rest in who's that you guys know any new testament stories where a dove comes down and finally finds its rest jesus at his baptism right the one who took God's curse that was rightfully placed on the world, on himself on the cross. And the one who gave his righteous obedience to, the, to those who are found in him, who are safe in him. When Pastor Ryan taught briefly about Noah from 1 Peter 3 a couple months ago, he asked in the end, are you in the boat? You can't kind of be in the boat. You can't, can't kind of have like one foot in the boat um, and be safe. You have to be in the boat or be thinking to yourself, someday I'll get in the boat. Uh, When I grow up, I'll get in the boat. Um, But I'm sure there were probably some hearing Noah's preaching of coming judgment and say, yeah, maybe he's right. Maybe in 10 more years I'll get in the boat with him. For those who are not in the boat, there is nothing but curse and death. Peter says in Acts 4, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Come to the ark of safety, the ark of deliverance, the ark of salvation, the ark of the cross. Be in the boat. Be found in God's way of salvation through the judgment of the world. So, we're about to see that God will promise not to destroy the earth again by water, but he has promised once again to judge and renew the earth by fire. Are you safe? Are you in the boat? Are you in the cross? That's not where this story ends. We get to our third point here. The flood waters abate. They go down after 150 days, and the boat bumps into Mount Ararat, and it finally settles on dry land. Noah's family comes out and builds the first altar that we find in the Bible. They take some of the clean animals that are left and sacrifice to God in response to his great remembering of them, his great faithfulness to them. And God promises that he will never destroy the earth in this way again and seals the entire earth with a covenantal promise of the sign of the rainbow, the archer's bow, a weapon of war and death that is laid down. And so, lest you still think, hey, Noah might be the one. Noah might be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. Moses quickly corrects you. I titled this sermon, A New Beginning. uh, But it really is the same old story. Moses paints Noah to be a new Adam. But one who fails, just like Adam. He comes after the calming of the chaotic waters. Noah goes into a vineyard or a garden. And he sins in the sinful taking of the fruit. Which then ends in shameful nakedness. This is, Moses is saying this is a new beginning, but it's the same old story. But God isn't surprised. God doesn't judge the world. Bring out Noah. Noah sins, and he's like, seriously, people, again? Come on! I judged the world so this wouldn't happen again, and here we go again, starting all over again. No. God is certainly again grieved by the sin of Noah, but he knows, as he knew before creating the universe, that a redeemer from heaven itself, who would also come through the promised line of the woman, must come and give his people new hearts. And at the end of chapter 9, we find where this line will go, from Eve to Seth to Enoch to Noah, and then through Shem, his second son. expectation is building and building as we keep reading this story next week we'll have one more week of observing the world at large and we're traveling at warp speed next week we're going to go through a genealogy that goes through hundreds of hundreds if not thousands of years as we have been going at thousands of years pace in these first six chapters but then, in two weeks, we're going to slam on the brakes hard and spend the next thirty-eight chapters of this book with just four generations, with just a couple hundred of years, when God will further reveal His great plan to begin undoing the curses in Eden. Um, I'm not—I I haven't done this yet at all this in this series, and I'm not going to do it every week. Um, but there's a couple kids' Bibles: the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Big Picture Storybook Bible. Uh, that I think do a great job at retelling these stories. And when I read these with my kids, um, I, I think I get more out of it than they do. There's some really good theology in these. So I am going to read you boys and girls a story. Uh, yes. A New Beginning. Time passed, and many people filled the earth. Everyone everywhere had forgotten about God and were only doing bad things all the time. God's heart was filled with pain when he saw what had happened to the world he loved. Everywhere everywhere was disease and death and destruction, all the things that God hates most. Now Noah was God's friend, which was odd in those days because no one else was. Noah listened to God. He talked to God. He just loved being with God like you do with your best friend. Noah, God said, things have gone wrong. People have filled my world with hate instead of love. They are destroying themselves and each other and my world. I must stop them. First, we'll build an ark. Do you know how to build an ark? Neither did Noah. Luckily, God knew, and he would show him. A storm is coming, God told Noah, but I will rescue you, I promise I'll send the animals to you, ones that creep and crawl and slither and slime and gallop and hop and bound and climb. And don't forget to pack everyone's food. The storm was going to wash away all the hate and sadness and everything that had gone wrong and make the world clean again. God had thought up a way to keep Noah safe, but Noah would have to trust God and do exactly what God told him. So Noah built an ark, short for a very large boat. Noah's neighbors came out to watch and point and laugh because they didn't believe. Noah about they didn't believe Noah about the boat or the storm or needing to be rescued at all. And Noah must have looked rather silly. His boat was in the desert. A desert was nowhere near the sea and there wasn't even a cloud in the sky. Why would anyone need an umbrella, let alone a boat? Ooh. But Noah didn't mind so much what other people thought. He minded what God thought. So he did what God told him to do. When the ark was ready God said all aboard and Noah's family and all the animals climbed inside and then God shut the door. And it started raining for minutes that joined up into hours that joined up into days that joined up into weeks and weeks. And the rain joined up into puddles that joined up into rivers that joined up into lakes that joined up into a flood that covered the whole world. Their boat that had once seemed so big suddenly seemed very small. But in the middle of that huge storm and the crashing waves and all the thunder and lightning through it, all God was with them. And God kept them safe for 40 long days and 40 long nights. Finally, the rain stopped. The sun came out and Noah threw open all the windows. Hooray! Everyone shouted. Noah sent his dove out to explore and it wasn't long before she brought him back a fresh olive leaf. Everyone knew exactly what that meant. She had found a tree and land. The water was going down. At last... The above landed quite suddenly on top of a great mountain. As soon as it was safe, God said, out you come. And so they did. Everyone skipping and dancing onto dry land. The first thing Noah did was to thank God for rescuing them, just as he had promised. The first thing God did was make another promise. I won't ever destroy the world again. And like a warrior who puts away his bow, at the end of a great battle, God said, see, I have hung up my bow in the clouds. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world, but it wasn't long before everything went wrong again. But God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why, before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. A plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. A plan to one day send his own son, the Rescuer. God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. That's good stuff. Uh, but it's true, is it not? God's, God's method of sending judgment is no longer pointed down in the floodwaters to judge the people But his method of judgment is now pointed up into the heart of heaven itself. God's judgment must be emptied on the head of Jesus himself. So that we do not have to be under his curse. But can receive Jesus' righteousness. This is good news. And this is the gospel according to Noah. Uh, The gospel is throughout the book of Genesis. Throughout the Old Testament. And certainly in the life of Jesus. So I hope... That through Noah, this isn't just a uh, felt board story or a Fisher-Price kid's toy set. But this is a story of reminder of God's justice. It's a scary story. Millions of people died. Babies died in this story. This is God's good judgment on the world, though. And God's great, great salvation of people who trust in him. So I pray that you would be in the boat. I pray that you would trust in God's promises to one day judge the world again. God's promises to save those who are found in him and be inside the boat. So let's break up and let's talk about it.